Is Christ all you have? Is that enough? It is a joy to be with you this morning back at Bethany Community Church. We're a little confused at what church we're supposed to go to these days. We, uh, as you heard last week, I understand from Pastor Art, you know, my car is on autopilot now to come to Bethany Community Church in Washington here. So I had a little mishap this week. I was supposed to go to Bartonville and came here, which was a be- real problem because there's no way to get there from here. But, uh, but uh, even this morning on the way here, you know, Abby, our four-year-old, is in the back seat and she says, Mommy, you're going the wrong way. Because Mommy was driving and I was feverishly preparing. And, uh, and she says, did you think we're going to Bartonville? She says, yeah, this isn't the way. No, we're going to Bethany. Oh, okay. So we're all confused, but it is a joy to be with you. And we are excited um, to worship Christ. Uh, to worship Christ with you in his power and in his glory. And, uh, for he is certainly worthy. We love this church. <laughs> we love you. And uh, we love Daniel and Ben and Mike. And we just counted a joy to have a part in your worship of Christ today. Let's, uh, let's pray together that God will really prepare our hearts for his word. Father, all we have is Christ. Christ is our life. That's the gospel. I pray, Father, that you'd open our eyes of our heart. Help us now, Father, to behold wonderful things out of your law. Pray, Father, that you would give us a heart to hear, incline our hearts to understand, that we might know you as you are, and that by looking at your glory, we might be changed from one glory to another glory, transformed more into the one Christ who is our life. Be with us, Father, and glorify your name. Lift up your name this morning that men would be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is Behold Your God. And so let me start by asking you a question. When you think of your God, when you think of God, what do you think about Who is God really to you? Some of you here this morning have been sorely mistreated in your life. You've been grievously sinned against. How do you think of God? Does the thought of him tighten your jaw or cause you to bow in humble adoration? Some of you here are carrying a horrible weight of sin this morning. When you think of God, does your heart leap with the possibility of peace with the creator of the universe? Or do you despise his condemnation of you? Some of you are maybe even now today going through severe trials in your life, and when you think of God, do you despise his sovereignty? Or do you find great comfort in your thought of God? How do you think of God? I believe it's fair to say this morning that the size of your God determines the size of your problems. Or maybe it'd be better to say it this way, that your understanding of God directly determines your understanding of your problems. You see, a right theology of God, a right understanding of who God is, directly impacts how we live and how we worship. It's critical. And this morning, I want to turn to God's word in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and find therein a clear, pure, picture of God for us to consider and refresh and sharpen our understanding so that we might look upon God for who he is this morning and having looked upon him 
I pray that our hearts would be moved to worship and moved to follow him with a renewed desire, a renewed passion for his presence in our lives. So turn your Bibles with me to Exodus 32. And as you turn there, follow along with me as I lay the context for our time together. There's going to be, a, just to warn you, there is going to be a lot of context and background that uh, we're going to share this morning that kind of works up to our eventual text in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. But first, we have, to, we have to understand the background and the context, and we're going to do that in the form of these four questions. The book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus? We're, you guys are used to Luke. <laughs> this is a little different than Luke. We're in Exodus here. Exodus is all about God's redemption, God's deliverance of his chosen people from Egypt. You see, when we study Exodus, we see that God has sovereign power. We see that God is faithful in his mercies. We see that God has a holy glory, and he's, in order to proclaim his name among the nations, he's going to redeem and change his people. And so when we look at Exodus, we see a display of God's amazing grace, and yet we find here a people wrestling with this question of whether or not God is really present with them. Let me ask you, do you doubt this morning that God is with you? Do you doubt that God is with you? Do you doubt that God is with you after you have seen God's power? That's the first question that we're going to hang the context on. By the time we get to Exodus 32, what has happened in Exodus 32? We have seen this amazing display of God's glory in the life of the children of Israel. They have been brought out of Egypt with a strong and a mighty hand. The greatest army in the world at that time has been destroyed by God in the Red Sea. The plagues, all this power, they have seen God at work. They have seen, they've ate angel's food, manna from heaven. They've seen poultry delivered to their front door in the quail. They've drank water from the rock. They have now, they're now at Mount Sinai. They've seen God's glory manifest to them in amazing ways. They've seen God's power. This is a height of spiritual experience in them. And then they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, waiting, waiting. He says, because Moses had already gone and received the law, had received the the Mosaic Covenant had already gone, received the Ten Commandments that told the redeemed how they are to live in order to worship Him. They had already received all of this, and it was wonderful. But now, Moses had gone back up on that mount, and the people were waiting. One day, two days, three days, one week, two weeks, three weeks, 40 days waiting. Where's God? We kind of got used to this grandiose. We kind of got used to this miraculous and now we're in the daily grind. Now we're in this mundane. And where is God? Where is his presence with us? And so what did they do? Golden calf. Formed their own God. Let's make our own connection with God. Moses was our connection to God before he's gone. We don't know where he's at. So Aaron, we're going to give you a bunch of gold. You form a calf, and this will be our Yahweh that delivered us out of Egypt. Exodus 32. After they had seen his power, here they are, completely questioning God's presence. And that can happen to us, can it? Sometimes after God has used us the most in our lives or done the most amazing things in our life, sometimes that is the time when we find ourselves most distant from his presence and most self-centered in our focus. Is that not true? That's what happened to Elijah. Elijah. After he killed the 800 prophets of Baal, all of a sudden, 
we find him up on a mount saying, Lord, I'm the only one left. Just kill me and take me home. Self-centered. And we find that true in our life too. Sometimes when that happens, we need to just get our focus off of ourselves and refocus on the character of God. For when we don't focus on the character of God, we end up like the Israelites here. For even while Moses was up on the mount receiving the very plans of God on how he would tabernacle with his people, how he would restore not paradise but presence with his people, at that very same moment that, the, that Moses is up on the mount, the people are in the plain breaking the covenant. And so that brings us to our second question. Do you ever doubt that God is with you after you see your own sin? Look at Exodus 32, 7 to 8. And God said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it. They've sacrificed it. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you understand the seriousness of what has happened here in Exodus 32? The ink on the covenant wasn't even dry yet. And the people had already broke the second commandment. You shall make, not make a graven image. The, the covenant of which God was saying, I can have presence again with my people. This is rebellion on the highest order. The golden calf threatens everything that God has begun to do in the life of his chosen people. It's a, it's a rejection of God himself. They were taking matters into their own hands. They were making a calf to do what the tabernacle was intended to do, to provide a concrete point of contact, contact between God and his people, a dwelling place, a meeting place. And they said, we're not going to do it your way, God. We're going to do it our way. We're going to take the revelation that you've given us. We're going to use gold because you said use gold for the ark. We're going to we're going to take the revelation you gave us. We're going to do it our own way. Make our own point of contact with you. They effectively fashioned a new and false religion according to the pattern that God had revealed to them. But it was false. And when Moses came down off that mountain and broke those tablets in his anger, the crashing sound of those tablets breaking must have rung in their ears as they realized the covenant with eternal God was broken. In fact, God said to Moses, let me alone that my anger might burn against these people. This is a big deal. God is really upset. Things are not looking good for the home team here, guys. In fact, God is so angry that look at what he tells Moses in the text in Exodus 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart. Go up from Mount Sinai, you and your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will get it, give it, and I will send an angel before you. I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But what does he say? What does he say here in the middle of verse 3? Exodus 33, 3. What does he say? But I will not go with you. I will not go up among you, lest I consume you in the way. For you are stiff-necked people. This is a blunt and startling announcement from God. 
The whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle. But this undoes everything. It's not just a setback. This is the end of the road. God's presence will no longer be with his people. Can we pull the car over for a little bit? Have you ever been concerned that God's presence is not with you because of your sin? Because how you have broken the covenant. Because of how you have failed to meet his high and holy perfection. Do you doubt that God is with you? On what basis? On what basis could you ever say that God is still with you? In light of your sin. Well, the the story continues. Israel's in a fearful place. And so we ask now, do you ever doubt that God is with you after you see your prayers? When you look at your prayer life, do you ever doubt that God is with you then? Because as we look at how Moses responded to God's statement that he will not go with his people anymore, immediately, what does Moses do? He enters into a mediating role. He enters as the high priest of the people, as the spiritual leader leader for the people. He goes to God and starts to plead their case. He says, don't do this, God, for the sake of your reputation. Don't do this, God, for the sake of what the, the nations would think of you. Don't do this, God. Be faithful to your covenant. Moses is pleading and praying on behalf of the people. And, and as you just follow down in your text, look, look at verse 7 to 11 in Exodus 33. In verse 7 to 11, in that little section, the text there tells us that Moses is meeting with God in the small little tent called the tent of meeting outside the camp. This is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle was supposed to be in the middle of the camp so that all of the people could have access to God through the tabernacle and the sacrifices. But here, God says, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be with that people. That, their sin has distanced me from them. But Moses, I tell you what, because you have found favor in my sight, I will set up a tent of meeting, a small tent. And so all the people back at the camp could look and they could look out at this tent and they could see the glory of God in a cloud come down and meet with Moses and they knew that in that place Moses was interceding for them. There was yet hope. There was yet hope. It was mercy that even gave that conversation to Moses. Now think of this. Look at verse 11 of chapter 33. Moses can intimately speak with the Lord as with a friend to a friend. What? This should get you excited. <laughs> Would you have loved to have been in that tent? Wouldn't you have loved to hear what the meekest man in all the world would say to the greatest God who says, my name is I am that I am? What would this conversation be like? What would they say? Well, I believe the text tells us what they said. Because I think in Exodus 33, 12, all the way to 34.3, this is part of the conversation that they had. This is a conversation that would lead to the greatest revelation of God that the world had ever seen prior to the incarnation of Jesus Christ himself. This is a conversation that we, church, must hear today if we are doubting that in any way that God can be present with us. Look at what, what Moses said to the Lord here in Exodus 33.12. Moses said, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have said that I have found favor in my sight. 
Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. And consider too that this nation is your people. You see, Moses here is asking, Lord, who's going to be left of these people after you're done purging them and judging them? Who are you going to send with me? Uh, Are you planning, Lord, just to send me by myself into the land of rest? Are you planning, Lord, to to, to destroy the people? Who are you going to send with me? Are, Are there any left in the camp who are still deserving of the honor of your presence? Moses wants to know God's intentions. Moses wants to know God's ways. Moses is praying that he might know and understand how God intends to fulfill his Abrahamic promises to this stiff-necked and rebellious people. And so God responds in verse 14. And he says, okay, Moses, my presence, literally my face, literally the angel of my presence, literally my very self will go with you and I will give you rest. This sounds good, right? God is going to go with Moses. But the problem is that in the Hebrew, what God said here is, I will go with you singular. (laughs) This is a veiled denial of Moses' request. Moses has said, remember who your people are. These are your people. And God says to Moses, I've made up my mind. I'm going to go with you, singular, you, not the people. And so Moses continues to pray and pray for God's favor. And he appeals now to God's reputation on behalf of his people in verse 15. And he says, God, if your presence will not go, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? Notice how Moses is continually bringing back to us, we. Moses is saying, this is not about me. This is about your faithfulness to your people from every other people on the face of the earth. See, Moses rightly understood something that we need to understand today. The chief distinctive of God's people from the people of the world is that God is with his people. The major distinction, difference between God's people and the people of the world, God is with his people. And so the Lord responds again in verse 17 and says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do for for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by my name. You see, Moses has succeeded here in moving God to compassion and mercy. The God who had previously seemed unmerciful. Now listen very carefully, very carefully to this, please. The God who previously had seemed unmerciful is now shown to be the God who had mercifully prepared Moses for such an occasion as this. You see, from our perspective, ours is a God who allows himself to be directed, as it were, by prepared persons doing a prepared work in God's way. But Moses' response in verse 18, I believe, shows that he still doubts God. How can he really know that God is actually going to go with his people who are so weak and so unable to keep his covenant? And so this leads us to the last question for our background text this morning. Do you ever doubt that God is with you after you've seen your own inability? Because I believe when Moses says, Lord, show me your glory, I believe what he's really saying here is not a desire for greater spiritual knowledge of God. I don't think he's really asking for a greater spiritual experience or a a personal uh, spiritual intimacy. I don't think that's what he's asking. 
He's asking God to demonstrate the fact that he's going to hold true on his promise. Think about this with me. Moses, when he says, show me your glory, is telling God, saying, give me proof. Prove it. Show me. Up to this point, God's glory had always been shown at a distance. It was always in the form of a cloud or in the fire that led the people. It represented his presence. Moses has just been pleading with God, God, please be present with your people. Don't desert us because of our sin. And God says, okay, I will go with you. And so Moses now says, show me, prove it. Bring the cloud, bring the glory, move into the camp. I want to see, Father, that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Show me your glory. Show me that you indeed will return your presence and your glory to your people, for we are unable to merit your presence on our own. But God's response must have shocked and terrified Moses. I pray as we look at this response that it would shock and terrify you. Because God did something Moses wasn't expecting here, I believe. He says, show me your glory. I think Moses was expecting the cloud to move to the center of the camp. Instead, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim my name before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Oh, this is beautiful. Listen to me, church. Here God begins to reveal an amazing truth, an amazing truth about his glory. His glory is nothing more or less than his divine name. His glory is nothing more or less than his divine nature being put on display. That is the glory of God. What significance, what weight, what light? The glory of God is the manifestation of who he is. You see, Moses prayed to see God's glory. And God's response is, okay, Moses, you're going to see my goodness. And you're going to hear me proclaim my name to you, my character. God is going to ascend into the pulpit. And he's going to preach a two-point outline to Moses personally. And from the pulpit, God is going to exposit his name and his nature. This is the glory of God. And what name is he going to preach It's a new name. It's a name never before revealed in Scripture, but it's a name like unto the name that God had previously revealed to Moses when he called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt in Exodus 3, 14 and 15. You remember the name of God then? Moses said to God, Lord, what shall I tell them? Who who sends me? What is your name? And he says, my name is I am that I am. I am that I am has sent you. I am the God that is eternally self-existent eternally self-dependent. I am the God who always was and always will be. I am the God of redemption, covenant faithfulness. I am who I am. But here, when Moses is doubting whether or not God's goodness is good enough to stay with his people after they have sinned, here God says, let me tell you another name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. My name is not only I am that I am, but my name is also I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This first point of God's assuring self-revelation to Moses centers on the very reason that he had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Do you get it? There was no reason that God had taken Israel out of Egypt other than pure, sovereign grace and mercy. 
Israel didn't deserve it. They had not done anything to merit his redemption of them. And so God assures Moses by saying, I'm going to proclaim to you my name. And I want you to know, Moses, that my name is I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Here, the supreme prerogative of God is elective love is emphasized. It's the glory of God to be gracious to whomever he pleases apart from any constraint that originates outside of his own will. God can be gracious to whom he will be gracious. As Paul later said in Romans 9 when he was speaking of this very passage and he's speaking of God's purpose and choice of Jacob over Esau, he said, so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. This is a deep and mysterious gospel truth. But until you come to understand this wonderful name of God, you will only have a limited understanding of his glory. It is impossible to rightly understand God's mercy apart from his sovereign election of it. But listen to me, please. Once you come to believe that God is who he says he is, and you understand that God is indeed the author and perfecter of every aspect of salvation. Oh, what comfort. Oh, what assurance to your soul. Oh, what motivation to worship and to obey and to give your life entirely into his sovereign love and keeping. You see, God is not harsh or unkind in his election. No, in fact, just the opposite. He is merciful and gracious. He chooses to have compassion on those whom he chose from eternity past, those who have been ruined by the fall and by their own sin, those he chooses to favor. It's his grace. It's his mercy. So be encouraged this morning. God is revealing to us here that his goodness toward us and his presence with us is not dependent upon how weak or how sinful or how poor our prayer life is. It's not dependent upon us. His goodness and his presence with us is only dependent upon who he is. That's why we must rightly seek to understand God. There's another truth that is related to this that I think is worth us talking about. Pull the car over again. God has just said that his glory is made known through the revelation of his name and his nature. So when you pray, God, help me to glorify you. When you say, I want to bring glory to God, when you live your life and say, whatsoever I do, may it be to the glory of God, what I believe this text teaches us this morning is that is we bring God glory when his attributes are put on display. That's what it means to bring God glory. To live in a way that the world can see God in who he is. When you love others and show the love of Christ towards others, they see the love of God that brings him glory. When you forgive others and show the forgiveness of Christ and, and your relationships with others, that shows the glory of God. When you serve people with the humility of Christ in your life, God gets glory because his attributes are put on display. That's what it means to give glory to God. But obviously it's an imperfect display of his glory, right? In fact, it's interesting if we continue to look at this passage in Exodus 33, <laughs> it's always going to be an imperfect expression of God 
as it's revealed to us. Because for us to see God in his perfection right now, in our unglorified state, would completely consume us. He is so good that your soul could not stand it. In some ways, he is so good, he is terrible. Do you get it? His goodness is, is a far exceeds anything that our minds and our souls can comprehend. And so even when God is talking to Moses and saying, I'm going to proclaim all my goodness to you. I'm going to preach my name. I'm going to declare to you who I am. He says, but I'm going to put some restrictions there to protect you. <laughs> I'm going to cover you. I'm going to put you in a rock. And I don't even want you to peek. I don't even want you to peek. So I'm going to put my hand over the window. Because if you peek, you die. All you get to see, Moses, is the after effects, the backside, the afterglow of my glory as I pass by. Moses has to be trembling at this moment. But this isn't the only provision which God makes for Moses. For look at chapter 34, verse 1. Here, God also reveals that he's going to reissue the covenant. He's going to reissue the Ten Commandments that have been broken. The covenant is going to be renewed, and this too is a revelation of the glory of God. For God primarily makes himself known to us through his written word. For us today, the written word is the ordinary means by which God makes his grace and goodness known to us. Our God is a verbal God. He didn't leave us a video. He left us a book. We know God through his book, through his words. The revelation of God to Moses here that Moses is preparing for is greater than any revelation that he had at the burning bush. It's greater than any revelation that he had with the plagues or the miraculous giving of the man and the quail. It's the verbal proclamation of God's name and nature from his own lips. God's self-portrait. And this view of God will be enough to quiet Moses' doubts. And I believe it's this view of God that we need, church. Of course, when we understand God for who he is, we know that he will tabernacle with his children for no other reason than just because of who he is. His goodness is the supreme reason that he abides with his children. No man is good enough to merit his presence. Only his elective love, his sovereign grace, his self-determined mercy is the reason for his presence with us. Does that encourage you? Do you doubt that? Do you doubt that? Do you doubt God's presence with you? Behold, your God. Stop looking at your own performance. Stop looking at your own works. Stop looking at your own life and look up. Listen carefully now as God ascends the pulpit and, and proclaims his own nature to Moses. And may your understanding of God agree with his self-proclaimed description. And may your heart be stirred, church. May you be stirred this morning for greater worship, greater love, as you see God for who he is. Can you imagine the splendor of this moment? Look at chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and the Lord proclaimed to Moses his name. Can you imagine the splendor and the awe of this moment? Verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the 
guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is Yahweh, Yahweh, a double repetition. Lord, Lord, covenant faithfulness, God, God. This is the I am, I am. And then El, God, the Almighty One, the Strong One, the Creator, the One who controls all of heaven, the One who created all of heaven, all of earth, the One who controls Satan, the One who controls the demons, the One who controls every aspect of a person's life and knows the intentions of his heart, and yet the One who is able to be near to us and be present with His children. This is His name that is declared. His goodness is described in these eight words. These eight words I want to look at with you so that you can better understand God for who he says he is. And as we go through this, I want you to ask, is this my God? Is this how I think of my God? So church, behold your God and worship him for his goodness of his compassion. Notice the first way God describes himself. The first thing that's on God's mind that he wants to share with Moses is that I am a compassionate God. (laughs) The people have just broken the covenant. And the first thing on God's mind is his compassion. It's his sense of pity in the inward depths of his own being that compels him to mercy. God, your God, says he is a God of compassion. You know what that means? You know what that means? His inner self is affected by you. He loves you. He cares for you. He cares for you. You have a God who cares for you. He's a compassionate God. Think of the father of the prodigal son. Behold your God. That's him. This is the God as he reveals himself. This is the God that when he sees you drowning in your own sins, he's drawn to you because of who he is. This is the God who's inclined to when you are in distress and in difficulty. He comes for he is compassionate. See his compassion but also worship him for the goodness of his grace. For the action of God's compassion manifests itself in grace. God's grace is his kind and favorable dealings with us who are undeserving of his help and provision. It's his unmerited favor. We don't deserve his favor. We don't deserve his presence, but he says, I'm a God of grace. He says, Moses, you can know. You can know that I will tabernacle with your people. Moses, you can know that I will be with your people because of who I am, because I'm a compassionate God, and I'm a God of grace. I'm a God who helps the the weak. I'm a God who is able to save. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of your own works that you might boast. God's goodness is rich and astounding. He is able to help. He bestows unmerited favor upon those who have no claim whatsoever to it. No wonder yet he is able to tabernacle with his people. But the goodness of God is yet seen in the fact that he is slow to anger. He is patient. The the Hebrew word here is interesting. It literally means, it's a Hebrew idiom, idiom. It literally means God is long nosed. For me, that gives me great comfort. You want to see a profile? You know? I mean, God is long nosed. What does that mean? When a person gets angry, their nose scrunches up. God has a long fuse. God is slow to anger. He doesn't doesn't have a hair trigger anger problem. He doesn't blow up as soon as we sin. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's waiting and ready for us to repent. God is not slow concerning his promise. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So God here is proclaiming his name. He's saying, I am a compassionate God. I am a gracious God. I am a patient God. And then he says he's abounding in steadfast love and truth. This is his loving kindness. This is his hesed. This is his steadfast covenant love. His unconditional allegiance to his own. This perhaps could be the pinnacle, the height, the climax of his sermon to Moses. His main point, if you will. I am a God of steadfast love. My love endures. It is good. It is loyal. It is perfect in its expression to you, my children. Do you think of God this way? When you think of God, do you realize that his storehouse of his grace towards you, the storehouse of his love, will never be exhausted no matter how much you draw on it. You are loved in Christ by God more than you could ever dare to dream. Church, this is good news. God loves you because of who he is. That's who he is. Steadfast in his love. Don't give up, troubled saint. Take courage, pressed down soul. Oh, you who are fighting with sin, do you know that your God loves you? See God for who he is. Compassionate, gracious, loving kind of patient. His steadfast love is better than life. But our God is also a God of truth, a God of faithfulness, the ESV translated. Our God is a dependable God. The fact is you can depend on him. You can count on him. You can take his promises to the bank. They will never fail. Whatever he said he will do, he cannot lie. It's impossible. He's true. He's the absolute standard of righteousness. He's the absolute standard of truth. There is no greater, higher authority that he answers to other than himself. He is true. He is right. He is good. He is worthy of our worship. He's truth. That's who he is. You can trust him. There's no one like this God. All other superiors, all other authorities will pass away, but not our God. He will never retire. He will never slumber. He will never sleep. The great I am abounds in truth. Look at his goodness. Worship him, church. Do you see God for who he says he is? But he's not done. Perhaps you're here in transition today. Let me remind you, God says he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. He's faithful. Do you see the goodness of his faithfulness? Thousands of generations, thousands of people. It's an enduring, never-ending goodness. That's who he is. Can the human heart rightly understand such goodness as this? And then he says, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. God God is going to continue with his original plan to bring Israel not only out of Egypt, but to bring them all the way into the promised land in Canaan. He's going to be faithful to the promise, and he's going to forgive sin. God is saying, I mean, it's amazing. If if, if somebody came up to you in work, someday at at work or at home, if one of your kids asked you and they said, describe yourself with eight words. Do you realize this is God's own eight words that he has chosen to describe himself? And one of them is that his very essence is forgiving he forgives our transgressions. That's when we get off the path. And, uh, uh, excuse me. He forgives, what does it say? The first one. He forgives 
our iniquities. That's when we get off the path. He forgives our transgressions, our opposition to his authority. He forgives our sins whenever we miss the mark. The point is this. No matter what kind of sin, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter what color this sin is in your life, don't you dare ever think that your sin is too big enough for God to forgive because the very nature of God is forgiving. No matter what kind of sin it is, if you come to God with your sin, He is kind, merciful, compassionate, gracious, able to forgive. There is no greater sin than what the Israelites had done in Exodus 32. And he's telling Moses, I will go with you, Moses, and I will go with them because I am forgiving. That's who I am. That's my goodness. It's interesting, too, just to make another point on this. It's rich. I wish I could share. It's rich. When he says he's forg- it's a participle in the text, which means it's ongoing forgiveness. This is not just a one-time thing that God is willing to do for his people. I'll forgive you once, but after that, you're on your own. No! It's ongoing, always forgiving, continuing to forgive. That's who he is by his nature. Oh, sinner, please, can I beg with you, sinner? If you are here today and you say, I, I do not yet know the forgiveness of God, why would you seek forgiveness for your sin anywhere else? from anything else than from a part, from a God who has declared himself to be forgiving. Come to him. Come to this God who says, I am forgiving. Don't hide from your sin like Jonah. Come to him. He will forgive. Confess your profound inability to free yourself from the bondage of your sin. Repent. Believe that God is who he says he is. And yet, You must not, we must not, we dare not take his presence for granted. For his last word that he describes himself, the last thing he preaches to Moses on the mount is that he is a God of justice. Look at at the text and see what he says. He says, I will by no means clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, God here declares the fact that he's holy. He's supremely righteous. He... His forgiveness can never mean that he overlooks sin. God never will overlook sin. He will never leave the guilty unpunished. Such would be a great injustice for God. Exodus 20 verse 5 provides a helpful clarification here because when, when God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses in Exodus 20, he said this same thing to Moses and he said, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. See, there's an important truth here. God is not one. He doesn't punish children for fathers' sins. But he punishes children for children's sins even if they learn them from their father. That's what he's saying here. It's kind of like this. Maybe this analogy doesn't work. But if I had a horrible, contagious disease... My children don't necessarily suffer because I have the disease. But if they catch that disease from me, then they suffer. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, my justice will be preserved for all people, no matter if, they're, if they learn the sin from their father or if not. Sin will always be punished. Unbelief will always be judged. So what do we do with this? Because he just said he was a forgiving God. 
Is his justice somehow opposed to his forgiveness and his mercy? No. Certainly all, guilt, all sinners are guilty before his holy law of perfection. But what he's saying here is the guilty who hates him, the guilty who spurns his offer of forgiveness will be judged. But the guilty who comes and says, I, I am guilty before you, I repent, cleanse me, change me, forgive me, will receive his forgiveness. You see, I think we see the picture of this nature of God best on Calvary. For what do we see on Calvary? We see three crosses, right? We see Christ, the Lamb of God, being slain for the salvation of the world. But on one hand and on the other hand of Christ, we see two sinners. Both of them are sinners. Both of them are guilty of their sin. But the difference is one begs for mercy and receives the very presence of God in his forgiveness. Today you shall be with me in paradise. But the other scoffs and mocks at, at his, in his guilt. And even today, that one is still languishing in hell. The guilty will not go unpunished, for that is God's justice. Sinner, please, look at God. Look at God for who he says he is. There is no escape for your sin apart from belief in the goodness of this Yahweh God. Turn from your sin today. See Moses' response in verse 8 and follow suit for yourself. Because look at what happened. When this sermon was finished, Moses understood what God had revealed to him. And I pray that this would be our response today. Look at verse 8. Moses quickly, without hesitation, without deliberation, this is automatic. In light of who God is, when I understand God for who it is, it moves me to worship him. Because Moses bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You see, right theology always leads to right living and right worship. And you see God for who he is. It changes your life. So what about you this morning? Will you just yawn, walk out of here, unchanged, committed to pursuing self-centeredness, ungratefulness, despair, committed to trying to somehow attain and assure yourself of God's presence in your life based on your performance and your own actions? Oh, church, oh, church, arise. Behold your God for who he is. Repent of making God in your own image and submit your understanding of God to his own self-portrait. God is present here today, yes. He's here for the sinner to forgive, to cleanse, to adopt, to indwell. Yes, God still desires to tabernacle with us who sin. And for the saint, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Behold your God no matter what you're going through right now, no matter where you're at, no matter how you're struggling, no matter how heavy the load, His goodness assures you that no matter how you feel, He is with you. So follow in His ways, delight in His word, and worship Him. You see, God gave us a perfect revelation of Himself, not only in Exodus, but in Jesus Jesus is the express image of the manifestation 
of God. May that ring in our hearts as we leave here today and close by singing. Father God, I just pray that you bless the word into our hearts. I pray, Father, that you, as we sing now, all I have is Christ, that we would understand that that because of who you are, you have given us access into fellowship with you through your Son. May we worship you and be forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen.